During July and August, U.S. contractors who purchase a Flip Edger will receive a special Loglor Edition sustainer for free. Warranty card and proof of purchase need to be submitted to Loglor North America, and our team will send the sustainer right to you. Offer valid while supplies last. Hey, welcome to Wood Talk, an NWFA podcast. I'm Brett Miller with the NWFA, and I'm here today with uh, an old friend, someone who in this industry has has been around for quite a while and has uh, is very well known in the industry for for what he brings to the industry, which in my estimation is you know a whole pot of gold with with the information and, and wisdom that comes. I'd like to welcome uh, Russ Watts with Lagler North America. Welcome, Russ. Brett, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, we do go back quite a ways. Uh, I'm hitting my 24th anniversary with uh, Lagler and Paladuro and having the pleasure to work in this industry. And uh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I guess, uh, uh, as we talked earlier, we'll go back into my background a little bit, that uh, before getting into the wood flooring industry, I've always been in the automotive uh, refinishing industry. So sanding has always been part of what I've done since the day I started earning my first paycheck. And I, I think of, uh, I've been sanding things since my hand was big enough as a child to hold a sanding block, uh, <laughs> hanging around in my grandpa's wood shop and things like that. So, uh, yeah, sanding's always been, uh, always been a, a focus of mine, uh, uh, from ver- from very early on, so coming into the uh, wood flooring industry, uh, sanding was definitely not something that was foreign to me in any way, shape, or form. So you started in the automotive. I mean, obvi- there's a couple people I know in our industry that come from the automotive finishing side of mm-hmm. the trades, and obviously two different animals, but so many similarities. So 24 years ago, you started with Logler and, and Paladuro. Um, when you came in, did you have any wood flooring experience or was it straight up automotive finishing experience that you came with? Straight up automotive finishing. And uh, then I uh, went to some NWFA schools early on. And uh, in the early days, I was pretty much turned loose. The idea was, Russ, we want you to tear these machines apart, take the time you need to learn about them, learn how they work, how they break, how to fix them, analyze them. Uh, we need you to essentially become an expert in how these wood floor sanding machines work and how to get the very most out of them and maintaining them and, and sanding with them. So knowing how they work and how to sand floors was vitally important to, uh, my becoming successful with working with these machines. Wow. 24 years. I mean, I know, this industry has been through a, a, a lot within the last 24 years in terms of kind of an evolution of the sanding process. And we were speaking mm-hmm. in the back a little a little while ago about even over the course of the last, what, five to seven years, we've seen just a huge evolution in the floor sanding mechanic. Um, when I was out in the field and, 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 you know, through your last 24 years, most of the floor guys are dealing with, you know, you know, different lighting situations, different homeowners expectations, um, and different equipment, different processes to get to the end result. And you made a comment that a lot of flaws and floors, you know, any wood floor finisher could find in a, in a floor, but today you've got homeowners with higher expectations. And, and I don't know if, if it was the, 
the egg before the chicken or the chicken before the egg scenario. But I don't know if that's a result of better equipment, better sanding processes, better training, getting sanders to be higher quality, or if it's a, if that was a result of higher expectations from homeowners, what can you talk a little bit about that evolution of equipment and the sanding process? Well, I think, uh, a lot of that has to do with the, uh, amount of lighting we're putting on floors now. I mean, the trends in building have changed and moved towards putting a heck of a lot more light onto these site-finished floors than uh, there were 24 years ago when I first came into things. I used to hear guys talk about, well, I'm having this problem, that problem with my floor. Um, I can see it. Unfortunately, my or fortunately, my uh, uh, customers aren't seeing it yet, but I'm starting to get concerned um, so I need to get better. I need to solve this problem. And, uh, we've shifted from that being so much the case that only the wood flooring professional is seeing the, the, the issues that, uh, are kind of hidden in the floors with all this light being put on floors. Um, now, now they're becoming a whole lot more noticeable. So, uh, finish sanding a different thing from, the, the multi-head and in our in our machine the trio coming along um, and making a separate science out of finished sanding has really come a long way towards making these floors look a lot better now that we're putting a lot more light on them. So we've kind of been forced to make the floors better just because there's more light on them, and now we're even seeing machines. They're now coming with their own onboard lights that illuminate the floor while they're being sanded several times more than what the homeowner's ever going to have to view their floors with. So that's a huge advantage right there. So um, onboard lighting is is huge. I'm really it's really refreshing to see the machines coming with good lighting on them, and then the science of finished sanding, basically grits eighty and higher on these floors that uh, using a dramatically different sander than the rolling motion of a uh, belcher drum sander, instead of relying on that to do sanding steps A through Z, now we're devoting the finished sanding to a very dramatically different sander. And it's not a new idea at all. Um, it's been for decades prior to finished sanding entering the wood flooring industry, uh, guys have used a handheld belt sander and a palm finish sander for for fit for different types of sanding and contemporary woodworking for a very long time, and it's now good to see that uh, we're using those ideas in wood floor sanding, and the quality of the floor has benefited from it. And so, bring on all the extra light because uh, it's great to see a beautifully sanded floor in a lot of light. I couldn't agree more. And that's, it's, it's such a good point. And I think you bring up something that I, I heard a conversation you were having with um, one of the students out here who had read an article you wrote a while back about comparing finishing of furniture and the tools and equipment used when, when you know you get a furniture or cabinet maker that's finishing their, their piece of equipment or their table or whatever it is and comparing that to a wood floor. Can you talk a little bit about the differences and and that article or that topic, that comment that you had made way back um just in comparing the two and why you see the differences are and why it is that you're i mean you're eating at a kitchen table and you're looking down at it and i mean unless you're in the trade you look down and you don't just see 
sander marks. You see a nice, even, consistent coat. You look at cabinets, and they're finished, seems flawlessly. Um, you could almost say the same for pre-finished flooring. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? And, and can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, the difference is uh, um, in a finished sanding machine, there's there's a very, very big difference doing a hardwood floor versus a piece of furniture in that in hardwood floors, we simply do not sand them up to the same grit that we do with furniture and furniture. We're regularly sanding uh, these wood surfaces up to 320 grit and, and, and even higher in wood flooring. We seldom get over 120 grit. So what works in the furniture trade isn't going to work so well in in the wood flooring industry. We've had uh, vibrating type sanders uh, quite a while, quite quite some time ago. I think even in the in the early mid eighties, um, the vibrating type sanders were introduced as as a finished sanding uh, machine, and uh, it. And the reason why it really didn't work out is it comes down to scratch pattern. It's a, it's a term that we use quite a bit now in wood floor sanding and sanding in general. And it's what the shape of the sand of the sand scratch actually is. And what was found with some of these vibrating or random orbital type of sanding scratch patterns is that they had too tight of arcs in them. They look sort of like little pigtails, little, little curly Q pigtails in there. And when we'd bring the screen in to try and screen those out and they'd be sanded up to a hundred or 120 grit, the result was disappointing that they just wouldn't, wouldn't do that. So, um, the development of the multi-head that we see now would open up those, those tight arcs. And even uh, we would still get the very much needed varied sanding direction so that you wouldn't be dishing out soft grain as much as, uh, as you get with the rolling motion of a, of a belt or drum sander. That's, that's the key thing is that we'd get the floors flat say up to 60 grit with uh, with the belt and drum sanders but then when we go into refining the scratches we want to keep that that wood floor surface flat in the process and unfortunately when you start getting into grits 80 and higher um, especially as the as the abrasives would start to wear out a little bit you would simply polish the hard grain structures dig out the soft grain structures then that nice flat floor you had at 60 grit by the time you got it to 100 or 120 and then screened it it wasn't so flat anymore and as we put more light down onto the floors that would become readily apparent to really anybody who's viewing the floor so these were the problems that we were seeking to solve with uh, with with finished sanding coming on and uh, being able to finish sand the floor and have that very variable sanding dynamic that uh, would would attack that surface from multi directions as you pass that uh, that that sander over the floor and being able to get those out at 100, 120 grit as opposed to having to go all the way to three twenty or four hundred. Oh yeah, well not to mention, and this is something that I, I think is often overlooked. Um, you know, a piece of furniture or a tabletop or you know whatever it is, a piece of woodwork that you're working on. It, it's it measure. I mean, you, you measure it with a yardstick or a ruler. I mean, it, it, it's 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 small in comparison. When we talk floors, mm-hmm. we're talking about a mass, a massive Correct. area that's 
not one or two or five or even 10 pieces of lumber tied together, adjoined, but we're talking hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of individual tongue and groove boards put together over a substrate that is flat to within one tolerance or, or another. Mm-hmm. And our objective is to run into these types of masses and flatten them out. Well, on a tabletop, to flatten it, you could find point A and point B and you know swivel it all around the entire table and, and understand where flat is mm-hmm. and how much down to the you know the, the micrometer how much you need to remove from that surface to flatten it. Mm-hmm. A floor is a different service, very uh, much so. You talked about you wrote a, a paper that I remember reading when I first got into this industry. Oh, maybe not not that long ago, but. It was about the trio and the, the 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 theory behind three heads, and I think some people call it the the trio manifesto. I mean, it's it's a brilliant piece of paper, a white paper that you wrote. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because some of the terms that you use in there, we've adopted within our guidelines, mm-hmm. such as the topography of that floor. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring up the mass floor that we're sanding compared uh-huh. to a tabletop is. The table, the, the topography of a table is one thing. The topography of a floor is you could very much f- another thing. Absolutely, indeed. expand a little bit. The goal in sanding a hardwood floor is actually quite a bit different than sanding a tabletop. A tabletop, being small as it is, um, the idea is to get it flat, as in how a pane of glass is flat. Um, in a hardwood floor, unfortunately, we're not going to get flat as in how a pane of glass is flat. There's too many other things going on. It's following um, what the shape of the subfloor is. And like you mentioned earlier, there are tolerances that have to be in place to do that. But still, if you look at a belt sander, it's designed very much differently for the the belt sander for the wood floor is designed very much differently than the uh, contemporary woodworkers belt sander. And the, the the handheld belt sander that we've all used in woodshop classes have what's called a platen. And that means you have two rollers and then you have a platen that's a piece of flat steel between the two rollers. And you hold that at a diagonal and you, you sand with that thing. And the idea is to get the wood surface flat as in how a painted glass is flat. Right. If you notice none of the belt sanders in uh, our industry have a platen. I, I think there was an effort uh, at one time. I think I remember a, a platen type of sander in in the wood flooring industry, and and the problem is is that it uh, left uh, ridges in the floor. It would uh, oh on the sides, yeah, the side on the cuts. sides it would cut because it would try to if there was like a little hill in the in the wood floor, it would cut oh, through yeah. it as opposed to following it. And right. in the wood floor sand job. You can produce what really appears to be a very flat floor, and uh, that even though that wood floor is still following some uh, joists and things like that, that may not make it flat as in a pane of glass, but right, um, it can still follow those 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 subfloor um, irregularities and still look very flat. But what we what we want to avoid in sanding floors is. Uh, is having things in the features in the sand job itself that can be attributed to sanding that is not flat. So we talk, we, there's, there's two goals in sanding a floor 
And uh, one is the topography, the sand job topography. It means uh, how flat or not flat it is. And we're not talking about flat as how a painted glass is. But when you stand back and you look at that floor surface, usually at an angle, and you'll see reflected light coming across that floor surface. And you ask yourself the question, am I looking at something flat here or am I looking at something that... Do I see waves? Do I see ripples? Do I see grain dish out? Um, you just ask yourself the question. Of course, you'll make allowances if you can see the floor as a floor covering passing over features underneath that keep it flat. That's very different from what we are doing in sanding. So those allowances have to be made, and it, it doesn't take a real lot of training to train your eye to be able to separate out and really judge the surface of the floor. Do I, have I achieved flatness in the sand job or do I have features there such as waves and ripples and grain dish out and things like that that are really brought to light with all this extra lighting that we're putting on floors. So right. yeah, flatness, flatness is part of it. We have two goals in sanding floors, the flatness or the topography. And then the other part is the complexion. And um, that, that's another part of the article I think you're referring to. We're talking yeah. about complexion. That's very important. That's the um, being able to look at that uh, floor and see that the, the wood's true warmth and character being expressed free of any signatures left behind from the machine. In that case, we're talking about uh, uh, cross-grain scratches. We're talking about um, buffer swirls. We're talking about... Uh, chatter from vibrations left in the machines it's faint bars in the floor that you won't see looking at the floor at the floor's topography from an angle in the reflected light but more you'll look straight down on it and a lot of times i tell people if they're trying to discern the difference between waves and chatter chatter from a vibration standpoint on the machine you can literally kneel down get on the floor um Take your, take your hands and, and form a diamond shape and put it on the floor and you will still see that feature. Hmm. With waves and topographical issues on the floor, you're not going to really be able to do that so well. That's a really good way to, dis, to, to explain a way to assess it. And I think as mm -hmm. you're talking, as you're going through all of this, I mean, we went and you were on the, on the technical committee that helped us re write the Santa Finish guidelines seven or six or seven <laughs> or eight years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things that we went through, it was, it was almost brain damaging as we were going through it, I think, was mm -hmm. how do you properly assess a floor? And you're talking about looking at the topography from an angle or with reflected light mm -hmm. to be able to see some of these things. But we clearly state the way you look at a floor is in normal lighting, not with direct light sources. Um, mm -hmm. You look at it on the floor being assessed, not necessarily you know down low and looking at it from angles, but a lot of the topography concerns you bring up can only be seen at an angle with a direct light source or when you get down at three o'clock in the afternoon and look across the way mm -hmm. that sun comes across the floor. And I think it's important to be able, and we get inspectors all the time and even, and, and finishers, guys that are out on the project and they'll call us or they'll call you or whoever. And they'll ask, you know, how, how am I supposed to tell my customer that this is not the way you judge a floor? for acceptability. And I think in our guidelines we wrote, and in Problems, Causes, Cures, the way to assess a floor is standing position on the floor mm -hmm. um, with normal lighting. Yes. 
you can assess issues with direct light sources under magnification to determine cause or, or even to identify what the issues are, but not to assess whether it's acceptable or not. The challenge that guys get is, and I, and it's a legitimate challenge and it's not one that I think we've figured out as an industry is at what point can I draw the line in the sand and say, yes, your floor has wave. Your floor has a topography that's not consistent and it takes away from the overall appearance of the entire floor. Mm -hmm. Where's that definition? Where's that quantifiable line that I can draw in the sand and say, this is acceptable and that's not. And I think the problem is it's because at the end of the day, it's the homeowner, even if they're unreasonable, Uh that's paying the check and they're the one that wants what they want. From our industry's perspective, I think all we can do is set, set the stage up front and make sure that everybody understands how this floor is going to look. Mm-hmm. And I always tell people, this is a handcrafted floor. It's hand sand. It's not machine. This isn't mechanical. There's no robotics yet that are sanding floors or doing anything for us. This is handcrafted. It's handmade. It's it's organic. It's you know, Choose the buzzword. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hand done. And with that comes man-made character and, and not necessarily flaws, but it's the character of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, – I think topography is probably the biggest challenge in sanding floors, especially since we're putting more light on it because it all comes down to individual judgment as well. Um, I field calls on a regular basis from people that have concerns about quality of the of the floor. Um, it's really nice nowadays as opposed to 24 years ago when uh, – uh, we weren't able to text people pictures or even email pictures so <laughs> right. well. We'd have send to, you a fax. Yeah, we'd have Pony to send Express. me a fax. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we'd have to go through the whole thing on the phone and and uh, I'd try and get guys to describe it. And that is one of the problems I see still happening today when um, when folks are in a position to try and give a guy help who's having a little bit of an issue on the floor. He's He's, he's struggling. He's not happy with the quality of the floor. Um, every time I'll ask for a picture. And if you're, if, if you're a wood floor professional and you're not happy with the floor, snap some pictures of it um, and, uh, and, and get them sent off to people that can help you and look at it. And uh, it, it always used to be people would call anything chatter. And right. to me, chatter is, is, is a complexion issue. It comes from the vibration of the machine, the motor-driven moving parts, the motor, the motor-driven moving parts of the machine. Um, out of balance, having chatter, it's very distinct. It's very different from having waves and topographical. It's, it's still, that, that's a big dividing point. Um, we're having a problem with our sand job. The very first fork in the road I want to get to is, are we, is it a topographical problem or is it a complexion issue? Um, right. Very different parts of the machine to look at. Um, if if it is if it even is the machine to blame, um, sure. a lot of times that's where we get into topography issues, uh, methods used, um, not skipping too many grits, uh, uh, sanding at angles, all these important things that are taught in these NWFA classes and in other classes by professionals that have the experience and know right really i'll go into topography topography is really a, a pretty fascinating subject all on itself um complexion is too for sure 
topography and I've refinished so many floors and homes and, and I think parts of our country where there's a lot more histor- historic home renovations going on out there mm-hmm. and you're not going to find a floor that's flat to within today's installation tolerances. No. You've got years of settling. Yep. I've sanded old dug fir floors or old pine floors in historic Denver that I mean, you get such a roll in that floor, you're yeah. running your machine, and all of a sudden the, the drum's no longer touching, and then it touches, and then it's not. Oh, yeah. And you've just got to roll with it. You've got yep. to figure out how to sand that to yep. get it looking good. But you're never going to get that topography flat or looking the same. It's always going to catch light a little bit differently. Exactly. Yeah, and that and that's, again, why um, the the subject of topography – being first introduced in, into the industry was kind of hard for a lot of people to swallow because they're saying, oh, I'm not going to get these floors flat. And it's like, okay, we understand that. But again, we've got to make some allowances for what that floor's actual shape is. We're talking about the sand job and how we sand the different grain structures and things like that. And that uh, have we created um, topographical problems within the sand job. So I actually do call that sand job topography rather than just overall floor topography. Hmm. So Interesting. It's in, in sand job topography. Yeah. We're talking about different drain structures and dish out and how dish out actually advances dish out as, as we know is, um, we have soft and hard grains all jumbled into the same floor and how, um, the soft grain can get dished out and the hard grain gets polished and, um, the rolling motion of the machines and on resands and the same mistakes are made from one job to another. And as a floor over its life picks up more and more sand jobs, um, dish out all on its own will start to form patterns and you'll get waves with that. We've seen um, lots of floors that are resand jobs and you can see it's oftentimes uh, um, an oak species that has uh, it's a hard grain. Uh, yeah. yeah that, that, that has a lot of flat grain boards in it. Boy, right. you have a lot of flat grain boards in it and you you're on your third or fourth sand job in it and they've just, they've never been sanded at angles and you can see how, the big chevron-shaped open spring grains have been dug out. And then um, when that digs out, your rear wheel hits it, and then that puts another dig, and you, then you then you overlap and advance with your next sand, 50% overlap, 50% advance, and then they telescope out. And yeah. it, it really gets to be like uh, – um, trying to put out a, a grease fire with a water hose and you, you know, just spread it, spread the problem. And it's so funny you say that. And I think I'm going back to when we were rewriting those guidelines. And in doing so, this was in 2016 that mm-hmm. we rewrote those. Yes. And we took an old guideline that had last been written in 2007. So it was 11 years old at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, nine years old. My math's off. <laughs> yeah. But we also combined the B two the B two hundred, which was, or maybe it was a B three hundred, which was the sand and finish publication, kind of Mm -hmm. replicating a lot of stuff. Two different publications. We combined it all into one. But I think one of the things that we struggled with was in both of those the guidelines and that publication, there was definitive answer or definitive pathway on how to sand, starting with this grit, going to this grit, going to this grit, big machining, then going to the edger, J-hook with the edger, then buffing, and you got to buff here and buff there and bring it to the middle. And it worked. That's a It's a process that works, but uh-huh. you're never going to skin the same 
cat the same way. You've got Correct. 10 people, 10 floor sanders in a room. Every one of us will have a unique process and how we make that floor look good. Mm-hmm. And as you're talking through process and the scratch and the angle and the different patterns that are in what you're leaving behind on that floor, mm-hmm. when you're sanding, you understand it. And you can almost, it's it's a matter of listening to the equipment, mm-hmm. knowing what what the sander should sound like, mm-hmm. whether it's an edger or a big machine or a, a buffer or a multi-head, you know what it should sound like based on the species that you're cutting and based on the grit of, or the type of abrasive you're using. And you also know what happens, or that, that sound and that feel when something's not right. Correct. And I liken it to buffing a floor with a, a standard rotary sanding, a rotary buffing machine. When I get on and buff a floor, and I used to be, I used to buff the heck out of my floors. I'd screen them, and I, I knew my abrasive, and I knew my angle, and I knew my cut. Mm-hmm. But I never buffed a floor the way sand and finish guidelines said you should, where you do the perimeter and you go on the outsides to the inside, and you make sure you don't, you know, let your your screen or your abrasive dull down too much. And if you switch, you got to go to the other side and blend it. Correct. I always did mine in a way that was very unique, but I would go at an angle and I would overcut and I. I abraded my floors to the point where I knew every square inch of that floor was a very consistent scratch. Mm-hmm. And if I missed a spot, it would show up in a stain or in the color. So I was so critical to get the perimeter and the field blended and make sure that field was consistent from wall to wall, regardless of how big or small the project was. Mm-hmm. Then you get a multi-head sander, and it's kind of the same theory, but... Rather than being so concerned about where you're clocking your buffer and putting that scratch in, it's a matter of pace. And it's a matter of knowing your abrasive Mm -hmm. and the mineral and what what pad or backing, if any, you have on there and what your objective is. But it's a matter of pace. You've got the footprint and you're Mm -hmm. walking behind it and you know what pace will result in what what that scratch looks like in that floor. If you move too quick, you've skimmed over. If you go too slow... You know, yeah, other problems. Down. Yeah, right. you over slick it. Uh, too much heat builds up too. Uh, right. If you go too slow as well, um, right? On a multi-head, so uh, unlike a uh, the the rolling of a belt sander, where your your paper actually gets to cool itself off as it uh, moves away from the the apex of the drum, where it actually contacts the floor. So yeah, uh, the pace in which you move a uh, a, a multi-head sander such as the trio uh, um, the, the, that have been a long question of do we go forward and reverse on the path when we're using a multi-head versus the, the much the same as we do a, a, a drum or belt sander. And the answer really is uh, yes, do that because uh, it allows you to move at a faster pace. Then you're going forward and then you're going backward and, uh, um, as opposed to just going forward at, at half the pace or even less and heating up that, that heat builds up more and it, and it breaks down your abrasive. So great point, uh, things to, things to look out, out for there for sure. So going through all of this equipment and, and, and where I first met you was, I think you were working on one of my pieces of equipment, one of my tools or something. And, um, we, we ended up connecting, you brought up a little earlier, reminded me about a school that you and I put together and we've done a handful of schools together, mm-hmm. but we did one not far from where we both were at out in, in, in Centennial 
Colorado and it was at a horse ranch and it was just an old floor well. that these uh-huh. people uh, let us use their place. They had mm-hmm. these old wood floors yep. that had sand and cowboy boots and spurs and all kinds of stuff and, and, and horse manure all over the place. Yeah. And, we brought in a handful of people and we, we taught them how to sand and we sanded those floors down. Uh Um, that was the first school. It was the first time I had ever been teaching someone. And in the middle of class, they ran over that 220 cord. I don't know if you remember that, but they ran over the cord with the big machine and that cord got sucked up into the big machine. And Uh we, as quick as we could shut everything off, got it all untangled terrifying moment. And mm-hmm. I know everybody knows that moment if it's happened, but one of the keys, and and this was one of the, the, the big reasons I wanted to, to really just sit and talk with you was not just theory of sanding and the scratch and the importance of understanding the tools you're using, but mm-hmm. even more important is on the comment I just made, understanding the tools you're using mm-hmm. and understanding the maintenance and how critical it is. I mean, it's an investment. We get people at our beginner schools and at our intermediate schools, people that are just getting into our industry. And it's 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 an investment to get in and actually purchase your own set of, of sanding equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's unique about our industry is that you don't just go out and buy a you know a, a cheap piece of equipment. Correct. You buy a, a, a high performance piece of professional equipment. And there really is no cheap version of what we have in our industry unless you go to a one ten rental belt sander, but can you talk about, and the reason I brought up that school was half of that school was not just how to sand a floor, but understand that tool. When that guy sucked up that big machine cord in the big, in the, in the belt sander, it was like a blessing in disguise. One, because nobody got electrocuted and we didn't damage everything, Uh but also let's take this apart right now. And then it turned into a half a day of Let's talk about maintenance. Yeah. Can you talk about that? And I know I know um, you've taught a handful of our schools uh, machine maintenance, but talk a little bit about maintenance, the importance of maintaining and, and, and keeping the investment of our tools operating properly. For sure. Yeah. Um, I, I really like the point you bring up there just a second ago, Brett, uh, that uh, these tools are uh, specialized tools, meaning that they're low production. So they're not they're not cheap. Um, we don't put one into every garage like a lawnmower. We, I, I don't know what the number is. I bet we don't put one into every two hundred. One out of two hundred homes even has one of these things. So uh, it is an investment, and just from an investment standpoint, you want to protect that investment by maintaining it. But more so than that. Um, we put in all this effort and all this work to sand and finish floors. And uh, the idea to be as profitable as you can is to be on the most efficient path to your finished product every job. It only makes sense. Why do you get up and go to work every day? Really so that you can get the most out of it at the end of the day. And <clears throat> if you let maintenance go on your machines, um, it's not just that you you can't turn the machine on and work. It means that uh, you're having to spend more time. Uh, you're having to spend more time on that job to bring it to its acceptable level. You don't have to have a perfectly tuned in machine every single day to come out with a floor that is uh, 
is, a, is of high quality, excellent quality, you can still do it. But the time it takes to overcome things where, say, your drum is uh, getting a certain age and you're best off replacing that drum. Maybe it's hit some nails or it's uh, kissed the driveway a time or two while um, dragging it up to the to the to, to the to the job site. I cringe oh, at that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> when you see guys pushing the machine up the driveway, oh. yeah, you see that with the yeah. We've all seen that. Oh, we've been yeah. in this industry long enough. We we, we see the guys that uh, see some of the horrors that happen on the job site. But uh, um, <clears throat> keeping your wheels clean, oh, that's huge. I mean, we, we've all seen the wheels that have uh, run over some wet filler or. or uh, even the even a resand job that uh, finish gets exposed to quite a bit of heat during sanding, and it 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 melts, and uh, it, it can it can stick and form residue on the wheels. And keeping the things clean, the wheels clean, keeping them nice and round, uh, transporting your machine, uh, keeping it off the wheels so that it doesn't bounce around in your van or in your or even worse in your trailer. Um, if you're transporting your machine in a trailer with the leaf springs versus the coilovers in your van, uh, really you need to keep those wheels off that floor so you don't beat them and pound them flat and just trans- I, I see more problems with machines just in how they are secured inside the van or the trailer and right. negligence and that. It's 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 almost appalling that you see how some some guys uh, transport their machines. Well, when you drop that much money on a piece of equipment, mm-hmm. it is, um, and you don't have the guys using the equipment that bought the equipment. I mean, it's just a tool that's being, like you said, drug up the driveway yep. and and slid across whatever to get it in the house, and then they just start sanding with it. Yeah, and then they don't blow them off. Correct. Yeah, keeping the machine clean. I can't understate, can't overstate that. Uh, the the uh, um, reading the owner's manual and keeping the machines clean. Uh, a guy wheels a machine in and into our shop, and it's nice and clean. And we haven't seen him for a while. And there's a reason why we haven't seen him for a while. Just because he keeps his machine clean. Keeping the machine clean uh, reduces wear on a lot of the wearing parts a lot more. And uh, you can tell who keeps their machines clean and who doesn't. And uh, a lot of times it's the guy who owns the machine is the same guy who operates the machines. Right. Um, that's just going to be a natural phenomena as long as things go. Um, the guys who have multiple crews, uh, some of the things I've seen, uh, every guy will have his own machine that he's responsible for. And uh, there's one one or two companies around Denver that uh, – I've heard, I've heard some of the on payday, they uh, they have to bring their machines out and take the upper roller units out and clean them all up, blow them out, and everything else, and pass a little bit of an inspection before they get their paycheck. Oh wow! I thought that was kind of a good kind that of a good idea. Yeah, that's just great. View things like that just to help throw a little bit towards maintenance. Then every. Every year or so, you really should consider bringing the machine back to your distributor and uh, getting it to a professional uh, uh, um, machine tech in your area that uh, specializes in the in the brand of machine you have, and have them go th- go through it, go through the upper roller, the drum, the wheels, belts, 
things like that and and uh, have the things replaced that need to be replaced. They, they do have wearing parts and uh, the thing about wearing parts is that as they as they start to wear, they don't perform the way they did they were new. So, right. And when they don't perform, you're losing out on profitability. So, one thing I think you had said at, at one of the classes years ago was, <clears throat> and it stuck with me, and I repeat this at a lot of the classes that we teach the piece of equipment that we're using produces its own worst enemy, and that's dust. The sanding equipment mm-hmm. produces dust. And although dragging stuff across the concrete and melted old finish, build up wax residue, whatever on the wheels and all of that, and within the chambers and everything can can affect how floor how these pieces of equipment work, the dust, the dust buildup getting built up in the fans or the coils or um, internal or external can cause them to overheat. After every one of our schools, we go out and we just blow everything out mm-hmm. and. You know, we're seeing it more and more. And, and today with a lot of the HEPAVAC systems that are out there and a lot of the equipment that's designed to, to hold on to its own dust and not create so much airborne dust like mm-hmm. we saw 20 plus 30 years ago, yeah, that dust even internally, I mean, the HEPAVACs, the, the filters, the proper way to clean those out, the proper way to blow them without damaging them or vacuum them or you know, I think I learned something at one of the schools you were at that the bag on the big machine and on the edger are actually a part of the filtration system. And if mm-hmm. you stick those in the washing machine, you've just trashed it. Yeah, they shrink. Yeah. So, yeah, dust pickup is uh, – we <clears throat> as far as a Belger drum sander goes, uh, we, we look at that from a performance standpoint. There's four different areas of interest we have. As far as performance goes, we have the ride of the machine, which is the wheels, how it, how it rides along. Um, <clears throat> if the machine's unplugged and shut off, roll the machine across the floor, uh, raise and lower the drum to the floor. All that is the what we call the ride of the machine. And a lot of the ride of the machine has to do with the floor's topography, the shape of the wheels. The drum pressure is very important, um, keeping the the articulating parts, the suspension as the machine uh, travels up and down over that floor, uh, we must have a nice uh, uh, fluid butter smooth uh, suspension in that machine that actually follows the floor's contours. If you have what we call an arthritic suspension, uh, as it rolls over the, the, the topography of the floor, um, you can have little catches and slips that uh, don't translate to a nice flat floor. So that's the the ride of the machine. The run of the machine is what we call when you turn on the machine with the with the belt on it and you stand back and you watch everything everything go. The motor and the motor driven moving parts. That's all the run of the machine. That has a lot to do with uh, with uh, the uh, the complexion of the floor. And if you have vibrations and things like that that translate into vibration type chatter, um, those things must be attended to. Then we have the dust pickup system, and we know what a menace dust can be, as you, as you mentioned before. Too much dust building up into places. You run over clumps of dust while sanding. Well, guess what? You're not going to get a nice flat floor. So uh, dust pickup is very important. The dust bag is an integral part of your, of your, of your machine's dust uh, pickup system. Uh, if you wash it, 
Um, you shrink the fibers there, it doesn't breathe as well, and if it doesn't breathe and pass the air through it as well, you're getting dust left on the floor, and that does not help your sand job. And then the fourth part is going to be the electrical system of the machines. That's a whole different ball of wax there. Um, mostly right. those problems in the electrical system are going to be what we call acute problems. Hey, my machine doesn't run or it gets too hot and shuts down while sanding. So we address those problems as well. But those are usually acute problems. What I think we're talking about here today, Brett, with the uh, um, quality of the sand job has more to do with chronic types of problems, maintenance problems, things that uh, aren't really apparent to the person operating the machine as the machine starts up, uh, the drum lowers, it makes dust. Seems like it, it should do a good job, but maybe it's not because uh, um, it's, it's got some maintenance issues that haven't been, that haven't been addressed. Um, right. One of the guys in the class today actually said something that I hadn't quite heard um, put into these words that was really excellent. And that's what I love about these classes, that these people come in from all different uh, walks of life to do these floors. And uh, um, one of the guys said that your machine talks to you while you're standing. And, and, and it, you know, it really does. That's and, so true. Uh, you know your machine and you know what it should sound like. And, and yeah. you touched on that earlier, but the guy just came out and said, well, your machine talks to you and you should listen to it. That's a great that's, way to put it. And that's just so true. Yeah. It is. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate all of this, Russ. This is, this is uh, invaluable. And I think everybody who's – we kind of laughed at the beginning of all of this. Um, if you're not in the floor sanding side of our industry, a lot of what you and I just talked about is a foreign language and mm -hmm. wouldn't understand sure. what your, your machine talks to you even means. But hopefully anybody who's listening to this is really – capturing the passion that, that Russ has and, and a lot of the theory and the science behind what it means to sand a floor. Um, Logler North America is going to be hosting a school uh, for the NWFA in November. It's a sand and finish school. You guys are actually hosting an installation school coming up, which I believe is sold out already, but the sand and finish school is in November and we uh, decided to put a wood equipment. I'm sorry. We decided to put an equipment repairs class on the backside of that school. Um, so the school is going to be November 8th through the 10th with the, the final on the on the 11th. We would love for anybody to come. And it, it, it's a challenge to break away from work. It's a challenge to get away when you're so busy. But to invest in the equipment that, that you put your money into and for that equipment to be our lifeblood for what we do every day on the finishing side, to know how to properly maintain it, it's no different than changing your oil in your car or or filling it up with the right gas. I mean, you've got to know how that equipment's supposed to run properly. And if you can do it on the job site without breaking down and shutting the whole project down, that's even better yet. And I know, Russ, you'll be one of the teachers at that class. So we really look forward to it. And uh, and I can't thank you enough for, for joining and just talking through a little bit of the science of sanding and the engineering that goes behind it. Well, Brett, you've been great through the years, and uh, really thank you for the support you've uh, and you've brought a lot into this wood flooring business and into the wood flooring industry. And uh, 
uh, I think this class is really going to be worthwhile for a lot of people to come out and see. Just some field maintenance and some tips and things like that. A lot of it turns into some a lot of Q&A and uh, that's the great thing about these schools. There's a lot of networking that goes on and, uh, and, and we all learn things from each other. I mean, I've been in this 24 years and I still learn things every time we come out and, uh, and, and get together with a bunch of guys that have different experiences. And that's, that's, the, that's the best thing about it all. Couldn't agree more. Well, Russ, thank you again. Have a great rest of the day, and uh, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be here, Brett. Thank you so much. Awesome.